ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome back for another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, this time for episode 60 of the Studcast, a big 60, if I say so myself. Without any further ado, let me introduce the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. And Ron, here we are, 60 episodes into the Studcast, and of course, many more hours that we've done with the Super Studcast and the rest of the story, and we've got a big one today. Yeah, we sure do, and uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Gosh, it's my pleasure to be uh, sitting in this seat for 60 programs now, which is uh, far beyond what I ever anticipated and never thought probably would get to this point, and and we seem like we're just getting rolling, so... So yeah, this uh, I expect this will be a great program again today. We're going to cover a whole lot of ground, and uh, uh, I think uh, I'm ready to go whenever you are, my man. Well, before we get going, we do want to mention that Super Studcast number eight, as well as the rest of the story for the Honky Talk Man and Kevin Sullivan, are out now. You can get those shows at tnstud.com or patreon.com/studcast only two ninety nine. For those additional three hours of Studcast Entertainment. And we do that each and every month. And we have a big one coming up next month, which we're going to talk about in a little while. And it's going to be about wrestling riots. And I know you're going to want to hear this. But, Ron, let's get to where we're going today. Where are we starting out today? Well, we're going to, we're going to, we're in Florida, obviously. Uh, we're now going to, uh, I'm going to run the biggest spot show that's, uh, ever been in the history of the company at this point. Uh, this is in 1972. It's going to be in the middle of July in 1972. I've had some great success with a couple of other spot shows. We talked about Bell Glade in which we end up with the bomb scare and a, and a problem in that one. This one, uh, is uh, in a little larger market. Uh, it's uh, Vero Beach, Florida, a little larger town. It's one, not one of the cities that they normally run. Uh, one of Milo's areas, it's close to Milo's area. Milo has, he runs in Melbourne and O'Galley, uh, and obviously Orlando. But for some reason, Eddie has told me, you know, Rhonda, any place you want to go after I did pretty well for them in Belle Glade, he's, he kind of opened the door for me. So I, I call them and talk to them and say, you know, I, I want to try to do something in Vero Beach. And so they say, good, go for it. Uh, so 
What I do is I, I give it some thought before I really go there. Uh, what what I'm finding is a lot of the places that they run in Florida and these small towns that they call spot shows uh, is armories because armories are in just about every city in the country practically. And uh, so, but instead of running in an armory, armories not really made for wrestling. It's, it usually they have some bleachers on two sides if you're lucky. They've got a few chairs. You can put maybe six, eight hundred. Sometimes a thousand people. I think that's about where we were in Fort Pierce the last time that uh, I ran a spot show. But I want to do something big time, and I, and I start thinking about what can I do that's not been done before. And I started thinking about schools, especially high schools, and the fact that high schools are in such need of money. They were back in those days. They still are in this day and time. Uh, they're, they're, they're really burdened by not having the money to fund their teams and to buy the uniforms and do all the things that's necessary. So I started thinking, why don't I go to a high school? So that's what I do. I go to this high school in Vero Beach. There's only one high school there at the time. And usually you're going to find the biggest building in town is going to be your high school gymnasium. Obviously, you've got football field, but we're in Florida. We're in the summertime here. Uh, you never know when you're going to get rain. You can That can be a disaster for you. So I want to try to get in the gym in the Vero Beach. Uh, I talked to the football coach. He sets up a second meeting with the, him and the basketball coach. And we talk about the floor, how I could protect the floor. And it all boils down to obviously what we're going to pay them or what I can afford to pay them. So I want to get them involved rather than just giving them a, 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 a cash of money. And and, and uh, I, I want them to have a hand in this. And if it does well, they're going to do better. If it doesn't well do well, then it's not going to be disastrous for the Florida office. So I work out an arrangement with, with them in which I'm going to give them 10% of the gross. Now, that really puts them on board as kind of partners for the event, which is really good for me. They're going to promote it within the school itself. We decide what I'm going to take care of and what they're going to take care of promotionally to make this a big event. They have no idea, as I do, how big an event this is, is going to be. It's going to be the best spot show that's ever been run in the state of florida up to this time it may be i'm not sure it could still be the best spot show ever run in florida but anyway high school's on board then i start figuring out as any promoter does that i need to and and i might say before i go any further i'm going to use this formula of getting high schools on board to work with me when I go to Knoxville and I start Southeastern Wrestling because that's just a basically two large cities that run every week and everything else is spot shows. You're really dependent upon spot shows. I have to be in the big buildings up there and I have to have large crowds to be able to keep good talent and to make that territory work. So I'm going to take this formula that I work out here in Vero in 1972 and a couple of years later in 74, when I go to Knoxville and start Southeastern, I'm going to utilize the same formula to get in all types of high schools in the state of Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee and North Carolina going to be operating in a lot of high schools, uh, a la what happens here in Vero beach. Uh, 
I'm going to be responsible for local publicity. Uh, obviously, first place I want to go is the newspaper. I'm going to run a little ad there, put a little money in their pocket, and they in hand, because wrestling is a big-time sport there in Florida at this time frame, they want wrestling interviews. So I set them up to have interviews done with two or three different guys prior to the event. Uh, I run an ad a few days before the event. And then uh, the day of the event, they, they they have a couple of wrestlers on the front page of the paper. They really pump it for me, which is perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. I have Mac, who's my friend that uh, helps me to run, run businesses and helps me to promote. And he puts out posters there throughout that town on into a town north of there. He goes into Melbourne. He goes back into Fort Pierce that's south of there. So we cover a lot of ground, and we're touching a lot of potential wrestling fans. Uh, do radio interviews. I go to the radio station. I get on. I do a radio interview a couple of times uh, talking about it, and I'm actually going to be in the main event wrestling against Paul Jones for the Florida Heavyweight Championship. So I'm not only highly involved in the promotional part of this event, I'm highly involved in the wrestling itself that night. And so... We go to the town uh, not ex not having any idea how we're going to draw or how well we're going to do. And uh, we really have a tremendous crowd, uh, much more than anybody ever anticipated that we would have. We sell out. We actually sell out the whole building, as a matter of fact. But we obviously fill the bleachers on both sides. And this is a pretty good-sized gymnasium in this town. We have 400 ringside chairs on the floor. We cover the floor so that there's not going to be any damage to the floor by people walking on them or sliding their chairs around on the basketball court. And uh, and then uh, we have standing room only. Once everything is sold and the 400 ringside are gone, the bleachers are full, we start selling standing room only with the permission of the fire chief. Because he comes and finds me once the building is full, and I say, can we sell some standing room? And he says, yes, uh, but I will tell you when it's got to stop. And so we just continue to sell. Uh, it ends up being a, a crowd of almost 3,000 people in a gymnasium, probably suited more for 2,000. And we've got huge crowd in there. Most of the time, you don't use the gymnasium floor. That 400 ringside seats on the gymnasium floor makes a big difference for this show. And we draw, we gross more than $10,000 in 1972. And I don't know what that equates to in today's time, but uh, it's really a phenomenal house. Uh, far, far, far beyond what anybody anticipated. And the wrestlers are blown away, and not just the wrestlers are blown away, blown away, but uh, but so is uh, Eddie and the office people. Uh, this is on a Saturday night, uh, and I get a call on Sunday from Eddie that just he's just like Ron. He goes, "My gosh, did you really do that type of crowd?" I said, "Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, I, I, the money came back to you last night. You sent your people over. They sold the tickets, and they took care of that portion of it." And uh, so you know exactly how well it did. And he says, "I, you know, I think I told you before, Ron, you can run anything you want to. But he goes, now I'm really seriously thinking about letting you run some other major towns. Well, they'd already placed me kind of in charge of Fort Lauderdale. 
because they were doing great there, running in an army, and I was able to find another facility for them, Pirate's World there, which is an amusement park area, and it turns out to be a great venue for them. They can uh, double their houses and double their gross. Uh, they're extremely happy with what I'm able to accomplish at this point. A couple things, Ron. First of all, $10,000 in 1972 is worth approximately $60,000 today. Well, <laughs> wow. It was a hell of a, a hell of a house, uh, spot, <laughs> spot show then. If that's the case, uh, that's a tremendous amount of money. Uh, you know, and it was a tremendous amount of money then. I think that's why Eddie calls me up on a Sunday and he's just uh, being so complimentary is because they just, they're, they're not accustomed to it. Back in this time frame, they were lucky to draw $2,000 in these spot shows. And when you get one that's five times bigger than what the biggest ones are, then they're naturally, they're blown away. And I was pretty much blown away by it myself. And as I said, uh, it's going to help me in the future when I get my own company started that I've I've learned how to run these small towns and I've learned how to maximize their capacity of their buildings and to and how to work with coaches and how to get all of this done and and schools were in such dire need of funds this 10% goes a long way for them they make a thousand dollars and what's that six thousand I guess in today's time frame you can buy quite a bit of stuff for six thousand dollars in the high school uh, as far as uniforms and things like that whatever they needed uh, and I think uh as I go to Tennessee later on and I start running some of these towns in, in Harlan, Kentucky, as an example, it has a 3,000-seat gymnasium because basketball is huge in Kentucky, and that just works perfectly for me. And we sell out that town. That gentleman there, the coach there, he hits me for 30% rather than this 10% that I get by with in Vero, but it's still worth every bit of it to me because – it's such a huge drawing little town that just uh, has population of 3,000 people, and you put 3,000 in the gym every time you go there. It's a pretty amazing uh, thing to have everybody in town, basically, uh, comes to your wrestling match. Well, I was going to ask you, obviously, it's a school fundraiser, and it's in the middle of July. School's out, and it's also a hot summer. I mean, Florida legendarily didn't even run in the summers for many, many years. Do you think the timing helped you or hurt you? Doing it in the well, I think of it helps. I think it helps because wrestling is, I found out uh, in the years that I was in it that wrestling's best season is summertime. Once the kids get out of school and once they start back to school, between the, in that time frame, that three-month period of time there, basically, you're going to get your biggest business. You're going to draw more people than you will any time of the year. Once school starts back, it hurts your business everywhere people dropped off the wrestling business was based around summertime now it might have been totally different in the north uh, but but being the south that's the way things worked uh, you're just going to do better in the summer so that's one reason i really expected to do well and i wanted to run it dead center in the middle of the summer uh, on july 15th uh, that's right in the middle of the summer. You got no air conditioning in these gyms. It's very hot, but I, but it's the same thing in, in every armory in the state that you go into to run a spot show. They have no air conditioning either. So you get close to 3000 people in a gym like this. 
I go out there and work in that batch with Paul Jones, and I think we wrestled more than 30 minutes, and it was really, really extremely hot. And you got to bear in mind back in these days too, Brian, people are smoking cigarettes. Uh, you know, it's not like today where you don't have that to contend with, but you sometimes would leave the dressing room and go into the doorways of these high school gyms and you couldn't hardly see the ring for the smoke that's in the air. So you've got not only that extreme heat, but you've got to, you've got to try to fight that to get oxygen when you're in there wrestling. It's really a struggle sometimes. What was the most memorable part of this evening? Was it the match with Paul Jones? Well, you know, oddly enough, it it was a it was a rib that happened in the dressing room that to me is is probably the most memorable part of the evening. Uh, you know, wrestlers are famous for ribs. They love to pull jokes on each other, and 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 sometimes they're pretty far out. And this one happens to be one of those that's pretty far out there. And uh, Big Bad John is wrestling in is part of the crew at this point. And uh, Big Bad John's six feet six. He's over three hundred pounds. Uh, he's a nasty looking guy. I mean, he's the type of guy that would scare you when you, if you ran across him, he's got the long black hair and the long black beard. And, uh, and he's a rugged looking guy. Uh, and there's also, now he's a baby face, oddly enough at this time, he's going to turn during this time period. And I'm going to end up working with him some in the next couple of months against him. But he's a baby face, and there's another baby face in the territory at that time called Mr. Clean. And his name is really, his real name is Ernie Bemis. And Ernie is like, I don't know, a lot of fans out there, unless you're an older fan, uh, you don't remember the old Mr. Clean advertising. There was a pr cleaning product in which a guy wore a white T-shirt and white pants and white tennis shoes. He's bald-headed, and he had an earring in one ear, and he was the spokesman for this cleaning product. Well, this guy jumps on that as a gimmick, and he 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 becomes Mr. Clean, except it's not C-L-E-A-N, it's K-L-E-E-N, Mr. Clean. Uh, he's about 5'9", 200 pounds. Uh, people didn't really, you know, wrestlers didn't really take his gimmick seriously because, you know, it's just like, it, it, it was not, it was not a flattering thing for him to do. And, uh, so his uh, opinion of him was not the best. He seemed to get along. He was fairly older guy at this point. And oddly enough, before I forget it, this guy is actually going to, after retirement, move to Israel and become a mayor in, in an Israeli city. I don't know what the city was, but he's he's got a future in Israel and he's going to go into politics. But right now he is representing, he looks like exactly like this guy. Uh, so much so that I like to put photos up uh, on my website for each one of these super stud casts or this stud cast as well. And on this stud cast, I'm going to put up a photo of Mr. Clean, of uh, Ernie Bemis, uh, so that fans can actually go and see if they want to pull that uh, stud cast off of, off of the website. They'll be able to look at a picture of Mr. Clean. Uh, and I think that helps people sometimes to see who I'm talking about in some of these stories I tell. Anyway, this night, Mr. Clean is in the dressing room. Big Bad John's in our dressing room, and Mike Graham is there. He's he's on that card as well. 
Now, coming over, he must have ridden over with Big Bad John. I didn't know about it. I'm coming out of West Palm. I'm not traveling with most of the guys. Uh, evidently, they get a little rib going that they're going to pull on Ernie Bemis, on Mr. Clean. And uh, so, so they, what they do is it's, a, it's like a traditional high school dressing room. You've got lockers, and there's rows of lockers, and uh, then you've got a set of lockers along the wall, and you have these little areas in which they set the bench in the middle, and it's like a little triangular-shaped, horseshoe-shaped deal where – Guy players go in there and get dressed and everything, and then they come out. Well, he had four, three or four of those little segments uh, separated in the dressing room back there that we were in, in one of the either girls' dressing rooms or boys' dressing rooms, whichever it was. And Big John starts a little argument with uh, Bemis, and and nobody knows what's going on here. I mean, you can't do a rib if people are knowledgeable and they know what's going to happen. So. We don't know what's going to happen, but all of a sudden I hear a little argument going on in, in the next little the concave, concave area, like the one I'm sitting in, between Big John and Bemis. And, and it gets hotter and hotter and to a point to where John gets up, Big John gets up, and he goes, uh, you know, you bald-headed son of a bitch. He goes, I'm going to go out here to my car and get my gun, and I'm going to come back and shoot your ass. Whoa. And, so I'm like, whoa, I'm like you. I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, geez. I, you know, so I get up, I walk around there to see what's going on. And John goes out the back door and he comes back with his gun. Well, meanwhile, John comes back in and he gets, Bemis now is backed into this little corner there. And Mike Graham is gets on the other side of the locker from where all this is taking place. And he's got two M80s. And he, so, so John says to Bemis, you know, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to put up with you, man. I'm going to pop a cap in your ass. And Bemis, Bemis is like, hey, well, you know, you, 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 you serious? You, you can't shoot me. You know, you wouldn't shoot me. He goes, yeah, I'll shoot you. You're damn right I'll shoot you. They go back and forth here for probably two minutes. And, you know, now we've got a couple other guys where we're like uh, Tim Woods is there. And he's like, hey, whoa, guys, hey, hey, easy, John, easy. Uh, and then John just keeps like he's getting more and more, more just enraged. And then finally he sticks his gun out, points it right at Bemis, and he shakes it forward. And when he does, Mike's standing and looking over the locker. Bemis is right down below him, and he can see Big John standing down at the end of the lockers. And he sees him make that movement, and he throws two of those cherry bombs <laughs> over behind Bemis. <laughs> and uh, and then it's so naturally, it's a bang, bang. It's two big shots, right? And Bemis goes Oh, he grabs himself like in this chest area, and he's like, and he just falls straight first, head first, right on the floor. Whoa! Like God, he shot. <laughs> well, hell, we think he shot too. I mean, you know, all of us we're like, oh, geez, John, man, go, oh, what the hell, you know? So we're gonna run over there and grab him, <laughs> and then uh, John starts laughing. And uh, and then Mike comes around, and Mike's laughing too. And uh, oh, Bemis gets up now. He's the—I mean, he's really pissed now. You know, it's like you you you—I could have had a heart attack. You know, he's screaming. You could have killed me in another way. It, it was just so. 
Of all the things that's, that would be memorable out of a great crowd like that and a tremendous night like that and the success of that event, uh, I really remember the uh, the rib that was pulled on on Ernie Bemis back there in the in the in the dressing room area. Just a just amazing man. What guys were do back in those days. Ron, you mentioned working with Paul Jones on the biggest spot show in Florida history up to that point that you had promoted. What other big matches were you having at this point in time in late 1972? Well, there was a lot of great talent in Florida during that time frame. Um, and I'm having the opportunity to work with just some phenomenal guys, uh, not only opponents, but partners. If I, if I've meant some tag matches, uh, some of my partners are just outstanding. They're just really, really great. Uh, I remember one, one match in Miami Beach was a six man tag and it was, uh, Tim Woods and Johnny Walker, who is Mr. Wrestling number two. He's not Mr. Wrestling number two at this point, but he is going to become Mr. Wrestling number two in the next year and his life and his reputation and his ability and his his fame is just going to go crazy. Uh, he's and Johnny Walker is a strange guy. He's been around for a long time. He's an older guy. Uh, he's paid his dues, but he's never really hit the big time. And once he puts that mask on, that white mask on, and becomes Mister Wrestling Number Two, he's going to change the history of Georgia wrestling for damn sure, and a lot of other places too. He becomes a monster star. So I've got Tim Woods and Johnny Walker as my partners, and it's in the six-man tag. I'm wrestling against Buddy Colt, Dick Murdoch, and Phil Robley. Now, Phil Robley is a character in, in, to himself. I mean, <laughs> he's he's right along Ernie Bemis in a way. He's he's a really a strange guy in, in lots of respects. I really admire Phil. He's a pretty sharp dude, and I think he probably did some booking for Watts, and he helped Watts a lot in Mid-South. And spent a lot of time there. Came and worked for me at Southeastern and Continental in uh, Pensacola as well. So first time I'd ever seen Phil Robley. But you know that to me was a great, pretty, pretty darn good six man tag. Uh, the next week, uh, and at the end of this tag match, uh, I get into it with Murdoch, and 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 then the rest of the guys kind of back off, and we have our little go at it, and. Uh, and ends up both of us bleeding. And, and so what they do is they, then to make it the next week, they put a match together and says that, uh, that they're going to put me and Murdoch in a loser leave town and Dory's coming the following week. And whoever wins that match between me and Murdoch for the loser leave town in Miami Beach will get the title shot with Dory. And I end up winning that match the next week with Murdoch. That's a huge match. Obviously, uh, you know, you don't want to get kicked out. You don't want to end up leaving the state. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty well, I'm, I'm pretty stuck there now. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do well and I'm promoting some towns and it'd be a horrible deal for me to just have to up and go. So I really, really, uh, take care of my, take care of myself there to, uh, to win that match. Uh, and then come back the next week. Obviously, I get my second shot at Dory within a probably a six-month period of time. Uh, that's pretty good to get two title shots in six months period of time. Uh, Dory and I have another great match, uh, kind of similar to the one we had in West Palm. That one we 
we had a 60-minute time limit draw. And in this one, Dory actually beats me. It's about 50 minutes, somewhere around the 50-minute mark. But uh, uh, I make a good showing, and I, I, I keep learning. I still learn a lot from that match with Dory. And, uh, and how I got beat uh, makes a – I kind of remembered that uh, and I made sure that he never, ever got me with his spinning toehold again after that. So – that that was another big match. Uh, had several other tag matches. Uh, Rob has come into the territory now, and he's wrestling there. He's doing a lot of single matches, and I'm doing quite a few single matches at the same time. But they stick us together. They start putting us in more tag matches. The tag team champions in Florida at that time are Sputnik Monroe and Norvell Austin. A great team. Sputnik's in case he's a he's a veteran for darn sure. I mean, he's been around for a long, long time, knows it all. Uh, tremendous worker can get great heat. Norvell Austin is one of the one of the best uh, black wrestlers in the country at that point. Uh, Norvell and Sputnik work a lot for me in both companies that I own, uh, both the southeastern companies, especially Norvell. Uh, I have a great respect for Norvell Austin. He could really get it done. Tremendous bump taker and uh, just a great worker in the ring. So Rob and I have some fabulous matches with Sputnik and Norvell during this time frame that uh, I'm really proud of. I wish I had a lot of those matches on tape that I could see more of them because uh, they were truly, truly amazing, amazing matches, some of them. Uh Television matches. I have a couple of key television matches during this time frame, and one of them is with my cousin Jimmy, Jimmy Golden. And Jimmy is one of the most underrated wrestlers, I think, of all time. And Jimmy has come into the territory. He's working single matches by himself. They put us on TV in Tampa, which is, you know, great to be have the opportunity to work on TV in Tampa back in those days anyway. And to work with your cousin and I don't have the opportunity to wrestle match tags with uh, Jimmy. My brother wrestled thousands of tags matches with Jimmy. But uh, it's one of the rare occasions I had an opportunity to work a TV match with Jimmy. And we end up winning that TV match. And oddly enough, two days later, I'm beginning to get somewhat of a name. I'm flying to Atlanta, and they want me to wrestle on TV in Atlanta. Two days after this television match in Tampa at the, at the uh, Sportatorium, uh, they they take me uh, up to ta- to Atlanta, and I work with another cousin, uh, Roy Lee Welch, uh, second cousin, Lester's son. So, you know, within two, three-day period of time, I've worked with two cousins on two televisions in two different states, and we win too. Roy and I win our, our match on television in Atlanta. So we are really kind of kicking some butt and uh and i'm beginning to feel like that i'm going someplace now i can i can probably uh hold my own with pretty much most anybody at this point and i i'm getting these opportunities to leave the state and go to wrestle on the atlanta tv that normally means that you're going to get some shots up there in atlanta at some point and things are kind of happening good for me at this point Going into Atlanta at this time, was it because of the wrestling war? Obviously, Ray Gunkel dies in August of 72. This would have been after it. Yes, it's, it's, it's before. 
so he dies in August of 72. Oh, Ray dies in, yes. So obviously I'm there for that. You know, Ray dies in August of 72. Is that correct? Because I couldn't remember yes. the exact date. August 1st, 72. Yeah. So I'm there. I guess they're starting to use me on television. I believe Watts is probably there booking for for Lester at that point. Lester and Dad have exchanged uh, territories, basically. Dad had the percentage in Atlanta. He gave that to Lester, and then uh, Lester gave Dad his percentage that he owned in Florida at that time. So when Lester goes up there and starts working with Ray as a partner, they don't get along. And that's where all of that Georgia war comes from is, is Ray doesn't like Lester. Lester is a very low key guy. Uh, uh, I don't know. I can't see Lester being hard to do business with, but Ray was a, Ray was a little bit more of a, of an alpha. And he wanted to, he wanted to have control. And, uh, so I, I, I can understand that they would have the problem. And I think probably at this point, they fly me in there because they want to get me on that TV. Because as time goes by here, uh, and we'll get to that in the future stud cast, I'm going to end up going up there. And Bill Watts is not going to want to put wrestling two over for the Georgia heavyweight championship. Watts is going to be coming to book in Florida and he's going to tell my dad and Eddie Graham, uh, they're going to ask him, you know, well, you won't do a job for him. Who will you do a job for? And I didn't even know Bill Watts at this point. Uh, Watts says, I'll do a job for Ron Fuller in Florida. And, uh, so they start to use me on TV, some in Atlanta so that they can build this angle between actually Bill Watts and my brother Rob, that they're going to you bring me in on at the end of that angle and switch the title to me, and then I will go back the next week and drop the title on Wrestling Two, and the rest is history in Georgia. We will be right back to 1972 Florida after this short break. Don't miss the fantastic record-breaking Super Studcast number 8 with the Honky Tonk Man and Kevin Sullivan at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. These three-hour programs take fans everywhere. Like the Honky Tonk Man drinking from the horse trough when he was training to be a wrestler in Ron's great uncle Herb Welch's barn. Or Kevin Sullivan describing his horrific encounter with Ron Wright's chisel. Podcast entertainment that wrestling fans have never heard before and will remember forever saddle up and take the deep dive into wrestling history and now we continue with studcast number 60 with your host the tennessee stud ron fuller and brian last there you hear it super studcast number eight and the rest of the story honky tonk man and kevin sullivan both available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast and don't forget Super Studcast number nine will be coming at you on Tuesday, September 11th with Wrestling Riots. More information at the end of the program. But Ron, I said we were going to return to 1972 in Florida. Let's do just that. What other big matches are you involved in? Well, I'm going to be in, I'm highly involved in West Palm Beach uh, as it had been for quite some time now since I went in there and started uh, uh, promoting that town. Uh, they used me on top. 
So they're giving me all these great matches and these great opportunities. At this point, they have turned Big Bad John a heel. And, uh, you know, for fans that don't know who Big Bad John is, uh, just a little bit of history on, on John. Uh, his real name was William Goodman, and he was born in Plano, Texas in 1940. He's a big son of a gun. He's 6'6". He's over 300 pounds. He's a nasty-looking dude. He's, he's, he's a scary-looking guy in a way. It's, he's like that guy you'd hate to run into in a dark alley. Uh, you know, you just don't know what he's all about. And he, he's got a great look about him. He's, he's had a strange career. He's, he's, a, he's a big guy. I don't know who trained him. He doesn't have the skills that, uh, that he, he probably could have, if he had been a little more skillful, if he'd have been a little quicker in the ring, if he'd have been able to take better bumps, uh, I think he would have done better as a professional wrestler. But he still manages to go places, and he, has, he wins lots of tag titles. They put him with some pretty good people that, uh, that he uh, obviously is a big guy. And he, between him and his partners, they're able to win a lot of different regional championships, tag team championships. He wins a few single championships as well, as well around the country uh, in various places. Uh, one of them is a Gulf Coast. Uh, down there in Mobile, uh, this is probably I'm going to guess back in uh, in seventy late seventy three, maybe seventy four. Uh, he's eventually going to come to wrestle for me in Knoxville at Southeastern, uh, and he live he'll move into Nashville and he'll travel back and forth to to work for me in the Nashville area. Uh, when I go to Australia in seventy three, which is very soon now in this time frame. Uh, he's going to follow me in there with when I leave and my crew, uh, Barnett liked to change his crews about every three months. I think he's going to come in on the following crew and he's going to be a manager in there. Uh, Barnett's going to create, uh, his army, big bad John's army, and they're going to do big business in Australia. He's going to really get over there as a manager. He's not going to be a wrestler. He is going to be a manager there. And, uh, when I bring him to Knoxville, I'm going to use him some as a single, but I'm going to also use him as a manager. He's going to manage Ronnie Garvin, who is one of my top heels, the top heel probably in the territory back in that time frame. And uh, Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin were a fantastic tandem as, a, as heels. Uh, John doing the talking and Ronnie doing the work. Wow, Ronnie can get it done, that's for darn sure. And that was really strong for me. Uh, I really liked John's work. Uh, I had some great matches with him. In fact, I, I remember one match I had with him when he's going to leave. It's probably about 1975 that he's in there, and he's going to leave. And it's a cage match, and I think it's the first night that I've been wrestling at that point about five years that I really find myself as a wrestler. Uh, during the course of that match that night, I start to do something that I'd never done before and I'm making a comeback and I start to shake my head and I do this little strut and dance and the crowd just gets into it. And I realize for the first time that, wow, uh, you know, this maybe enhances my ability in the ring. It makes me stronger than what I have been for the first five years. 
I, I, I developed that. It happens that night by accident. You don't plan things sometimes. But in that cage match with Big Bad John, I become, for the first time in my life, I realize and recognize what I need to do to really get over as a Tennessee stud. And uh, I thank him for that because he's selling good. He's putting me over. And it just all seems to fit together on that particular match. You mentioned the match where you guys work in a lights-out match. For the listeners who don't know what that stipulation is, can you explain what a lights-out match is? Yes. Uh, lights-out matches, they have them in Florida. They've been having them for many, many years. Uh, I saw the other day a list of them on Facebook, on one of the group's sites, uh, and I may be at Barry Rose's group. It could be Barry Rose's group. They had every lights out match in Florida from early seventies, probably to 78 or so the late seventies. And I was looking at that because they had the list of it. And I, I think I had seven lights out matches in my time frame in, in Florida, uh, the years that I was there and the lights out matches. It's just, a well, what they do is I'll explain it in a way of exactly how it happens. And when you had a lights out match, what they did is the, they have their usual card. Every match before you is just like a regular night's worth matches. And then at the end of the, the last match prior to the main event, which is always the last match, that's the lights out match, uh, they, uh, they send the announcer to the ring. And the announcer uh, gets a microphone and he gets the fans' attention and uh, and he speaks to the usually the way they did it is he would say uh, can the uh, lights the building's light managers that manages the lights can you please dim the house lights and they would darken the building not to black but they would darken the building substantially. And then he makes this announcement to the fan. He would say, this match is not sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. That's indicated by, obviously, the dimming of the house lights. And it is a no disqualification, no time limit. And the referee, there will be a referee, but he will not be inside the ring. He'll be on the floor. And he's only there. He has no control over the match. He's only there to count someone out if there's a potential pinfall. So the match goes on. There's no disqualification. There's no time limit. So the match is going to continue until somebody gets counted out. And uh, then once he finishes that spiel and he explains what type of match it is and what the, what the uh, stipulations are to the match, then he says, uh, could you please bring the house lights back up? The house lights come back up. There used to be a roar in the crowd. It's like the big moment, you know, hey. And uh, then he would introduce the contestants. So that's the way they set them up. Uh, those matches normally had, had, had blood in them. Uh, it was, uh, you, didn't, you didn't go far enough into an angle to get to, the, to that point and then not, and not give the fans everything that they expected to see. And uh, that's what you did in those type of matches. You you certainly gave them exactly what they expected to see at that point. What did you give them in the match with Big Bad John? Big Bad John, like I said, not a greatest worker. He's not the greatest worker, but he's a big, impressive guy. 
And I was able to do things with him that, that he probably didn't have a whole lot of other people that, that were able to do with him because I'm big. I'm, I'm actually taller than he is, and I'm just about the same size body-wise. So I was able to bump him some and do things to him that probably a lot of people couldn't do to him. And we had a, we had a great match. We uh, had a tremendous match, actually. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, two weeks later, I think I win the match. But uh, two weeks later, they're going to bring it back again. Uh, they have another lights-out match two weeks later. And that's really unusual. You don't usually follow these things quickly with another lights-out match. But when your matches are good enough that your fans really enjoy it, uh, when you're a promoter or a booker and you watch those matches, you you don't mind bringing them back. You don't mind giving them another, giving those fans another opportunity to see that good stuff again. And so, you know, uh, and I don't know who was booking. I can't remember at this time who's booking. It's probably Louis Tillette. And uh, Louis watching this match, and he probably says, you know, gosh, man, we, we got to do it again. So he's going to do it again, but he's going to up the ante substantially. I mean, and this is smart booking. He's not just going to bring back another lights-out match. He's going to make this one really something special. So what he does in the next one that we have two weeks later, we're still in West Palm, is he's going to make this lights-out match with a stipulation that both wrestlers must tape their fist, and the referee for this match is going to be the boxing legend himself, Joe Lewis, which, gosh, was for me such an honor. I mean, I had such respect for Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis, in my opinion, one of the greatest boxers of all time and kept his kept his act together. I mean, had a great amount of respect everywhere he went. And to be able to have him referee one of my matches, it was like a real honor for me. I, I couldn't, I was a, I was like a big Mark, you know, I, I wanted to follow him around, you know, during the course of the night, sit and talk to him and find out about certain matches that he had had and fights that he had had. And uh, so that to me was a fabulous piece of booking because the first first lights out match sold out and uh you know he come back two weeks later and sell it out again the same two guys uh we had another great match same and i think uh i probably went over again in the second one with that we had but but like i say my hat's off to to uh louis if louis was the booker and i believe he was at this point uh, to come up with that uh, that type of stipulations and to get somebody like Joe Lewis. All of that came from the connection between Dad and Eddie and Chris Dundee in uh, Miami. Uh, Chris Dundee, obviously, uh, Muhammad Ali's guy, and uh, and Angelo, they, those guys were trainers, and they they basically owned boxing in Miami, in Miami Beach, and and they had all the connections to get whatever fighter you may want. And somehow, I guess Eddie and Dad might have gotten involved. And they said, call Chris and see if Chris can get Joe Lewis. And uh, Joe Lewis ends up refereeing that match. You mentioned that you end up going to Australia. Is it around this time? Well, it's getting close. Now, we're getting very, very close. Uh, actually, 
a couple of weeks after this lights out match in in West Palm is going to be the last match that I'm going to have in the United States in the continental United States before I go to Australia. And we are wrestling in West Palm, Jack and I, for the Florida Heavyweight Championship. Uh, and it's in my town, basically. You know, I call it my town because I'm really over there. I've, I've been on top there for at most 90% of the shows since I since they started. They brought wrestling back to West Palm. And to be able to wrestle Jack... Uh, which, you know, Jack and I have great history because of the snake pit days and uh, up and down the roads together. I love Jack Briscoe. He's just a f- not just one of the greatest athletes of all time and one of the greatest amateur athletes of all time and as a wrestler. He's, he's a great guy as well. And we go out there and we do an hour. And, uh, wow, I... You know, when I think back about that match, uh, I think it was one of the greatest matches I ever had in my life. Uh, you don't, and what's really strange is not many territories had babyface matches in which they put two babyfaces against each other for some type of championship. And uh, that credit goes to Eddie because Eddie wanted fans to see those real wrestling matches. And gosh, this match with Jack, uh, as all matches with Jack, when you work with Jack, he's uh, he's he's stiff, he's snug, uh, he's he's he likes he likes that really look tough and to be close and the things got to look good. It's part work and it's part shoot sometimes. You know, I mean, sometimes if you want something, you got to almost go to take it. Uh, he's not going to give you much. Uh, he calls a great match. Uh, Jack's a fabulous talent, and and at this point he is on top of his game. This is just before he's going to get the world title. Uh, he's going to win his championship from Harley. Harley's going to win it off of Dory, and then he's going to take it off of Harley. So there, Jack is all the way prepared to become the next world heavyweight champion. He probably doesn't know it, but uh. It's going to happen for him, and it'll happen for him very soon. And I felt honored to be in the ring with Jack. Uh, every time I ever got in the ring with Jack Briscoe, I felt honored to be in the ring with him. He is just a tremendous athlete and uh, and one of the very best world champions of all time. Let's get a couple of listener questions in here this week, Ron. This first one is from Craig Brinkley. What was the procedure for doing the Continental Championship TV taping while having a live event at the same time in the Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama? Jeez, that, that's a great question. You know, uh, there's a heck of a lot to that. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do a live event uh, and Birmingham is a Monday night, regular Monday night town. It's so... You and then try to assimilate and 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 to build into that live event a television program with interviews uh, and all the things that go on. There is a tremendous amount of coordination that needs to take place in order for it to work properly. Uh, we'd never done it before. I had never done it before. We had produced shows in television studios as most promoters promoters did around the world at that point but uh, once Vince kind of got involved and 
and started doing his shows in these big arenas, I could see that we could no longer do studio programs and have impact that we're going to need to compete. And uh, so I decided in 1985 to change the name of Southeastern Wrestling, uh, the Pensacola-based company, to Continental and take our wrestling out of the studio and into the biggest, one of our biggest towns and biggest arenas that we had. Uh, It was a real gamble uh, to, to do it to begin with, but it paid off. Uh, not only at this point, uh, Charlie Platt's been doing the studio show in Southeastern. I felt like that I wanted to, to stake it, take it in another direction there. So far as the commentator was concerned and I hired Gordon because he's available on Mondays. It's not a weekend in which he's doing Georgia TV. He's doing Tampa TV. He's he's doing these televisions here, there, and everywhere because he is one of the most desired commentators in the world. And when I ask him to do this show for me, he's like, "Yes, sir, Ron. I I love to." Man, he, he Gordon and I had been friends for many, many years. So so I take a real step here uh, out of the studio and into a big building. Uh, now you don't have those cameras sitting down there on the floor of your studio. You've got handheld cameras and you've got uh, uh, placed cameras. Uh, you have five cameras rather than a three camera operation like most studios have. Everything changes. Uh, you, I, I even catered dinners. I, I decided that, that we're going to go on Monday to Birmingham and we got to start early. So we had to start getting at Birmingham Instead of arriving there at six o'clock, we were having to come in there around two and three o'clock because we had to do all of the promos and all of the uh, interviews for to fill all the markets in which the program was going to be sent to. So that required you to be there early. I didn't want my boys to not have chance to eat. So I catered in meals to them. Uh, they could eat all afternoon. They brought the food in around uh, three o'clock in the afternoon and guys would eat up until about six o'clock. Then they couldn't get any eat any later because they're actually going to be wrestling. They weren't wrestling. They could just do whatever they wanted to. They had to be there. I wanted them to be comfortable. I wanted them to be fed and I wanted to have them up and I wanted to have that atmosphere that's necessary when you're doing television. It's such a vital, important part of your product that you've got to have everybody on board and everybody thinking the same way. So it worked pretty good, but there were problems, and especially in the early going on which you would have breakdowns because of production problems and you would have to change matches uh, quickly and you would be able you'd have to send a match out there to fill in while you're trying to get your cameras back up or whatever the problem may be so we started to encounter problems and it became difficult to to have this live event and have the not keep those people sitting out there for an hour longer because you're doing television involved with it. What we did, and we assimilated those TV matches into the, into the night's matches. We, we put some of our television matches as part of the card so that when the fans saw that match and they introduced those people, they say, oh, this is our card for tonight. Well, we're actually recording that and going to show that 
on the television program or pieces of it. It took a lot of creativity and a lot of thought to be able to maximize what we're trying to do with a big building, uh, with a great production. And uh, uh, we, we did a pretty decent job of it, and it got better as time went on. Uh, and Gordon was just always phenomenal and, uh, and a key part of it. When you upgraded the production, what were the costs per episode? It was substantially more. I mean, obviously, we were doing studio matches in uh, TVY, WTVY in Dothan, Alabama for the entire time we operated Southeastern. It was the same studios that uh, Lee Fields and the Fields Brothers had used many years, many, many years before I bought the business from them. And it was it was we got it for free. They basically did all of that production. They produced our shows for free, did their interviews. They put those on the tapes and shipped the tapes and handled all of the the distribution of tapes to the different markets that we were operating in, and they charged zero money for it. So, you know, when you go to now, we've got two trucks that back in there beside the Boutwell Auditorium, two big old trucks, and one is your engineer truck, and the other's got all your equipment on it, and they're unloading, and they come in there on Mondays at 8 o'clock in the morning and start running lines and cables through the building and they're getting their cameras set up and, and they're handheld and they're, they're, they're positioned and, and uh, cameras are all set up. It's a, it's a big operation, and it's, it's, it's fairly expensive. You you take these steps as a as a gamble for many many reasons, but I just felt like if we do this properly, and I knew that we could do it properly, I knew we had the talent that was necessary to make it um, to make it work. I just didn't know if we were going to be able to make that building uh, look like it should look. Uh, but what happened is, is our product went crazy. Our Southeastern, which had been in doing tremendous business, once we switched it to Continental and we started sending this tape around to the different markets, it, it business just you kept growing. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger because now you had something that could compete with Vince. Vince is about to get on that national TV and, uh, you know, when they see that in your city, they're going to wonder, well, why is there in a studio? If you're in a studio and you're looking at a building that's got 10,000 10, people in it, uh, as compared to a studio with 200 people in it, there's no, there's no comparison as to what the product is. So we jumped out of that 200 into the six, 8,000 realm. And we had that big crowd and that big reaction and, uh, it makes a huge difference, and it just made our product that much better. It made us stronger. We have time for one more question, Ron, and this one is from Monty Brookshire. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, in London, England. How did you discover exotic Adrian Street here from England, and what did you think about his ability in the ring and on the microphone when he came into Continental Championship Wrestling? Uh, Adrian Street. Uh, I love Adrian Street. Adrian Street, uh, 
Gee, this is a good. I, I really like this question. Uh, you know, because of Adrian, Adrian Street is a unique individual. I guess that's being polite about it. Uh, I'm not really sure what Adrian is, you know, uh, and I don't know if Adrian is really sure what Adrian is. Uh, the reason I did not find Adrian, Adrian found me and Adrian sent a tape to me and had somebody give my number to him. And he called me and he in his English accent. And he said, Ron, I'd like to have you look at my tape. And, uh, I was like, uh, well, okay, yeah, send me, send me the tape. And uh, so I remember the, I took the tape to, to Dothan, and this was just about the time we're switching over to, to Continental. And I took the tape into the control room, and we weren't ready to do the program yet. It was about 30 minutes before the program, and I asked the director, I said, can you put this tape up on the machine? I, I want to see it. And there were cameramen were up there and uh, production was up there. Uh, Charlie Platt was up there. There was a lot of people in the control room and they put the tape on. And it was Adrian Street doing his, uh, I'll just think what I could do to you. Song. Imagine what I could do to you. There you go. And I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it rolled probably 30 seconds and he's strutting out. He's getting his gear on. Uh, it, it's a great piece. It's a fabulous, fabulous little piece. And, uh, I, I was pretty speechless. And, and the, boy, the rest of them in there, though, weren't. I mean, the, the director and the camera guys, they were like, oh my God, who is that? You know, I said, well, his name is Adrian Street. Oh, geez, Ron, are you serious? Are you thinking about bringing him in? And I said, uh, well, guys, I said, uh, let's watch this whole thing and, and see. So, you know, the, I wasn't impressed by the song, obviously. He's not a singer. But I did see some wrestling moves in that in that video that showed me that this guy is much more than uh, than this person persona that I'm seeing here on the tape, uh, and and a singer or a songwriter or whoever writes his stuff. And I believe Adrian wrote his own stuff. I was impressed by a few of the wrestling moves that I saw, and then I started to do my research. I I pulled, said, okay, I've seen enough to pull it off. I took the tape back home with me. And I started to call around and talk to some people that, to find out if they could give me a little more insight into what Adrian Street was all about. Uh, Adrian Street is one of the most colorful characters probably in the history of the sport. He had fantastic history in England, uh, was a major star uh, when wrestling was big. He was a major star, and uh, and he came to America, and he 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 became a major star in a lot of other places. Uh, not only did I like Adrian, I find I, obviously I took Adrian in because he came to wrestle for me. That's why the gentleman's asking me these questions. Obviously, uh, I I decided yes, I'm going to give Adrian a shot. Because I really liked his wrestling ability. That made, and, and I talked to him about it uh, in Wiggum, you know, 
and he 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 was an old Wiggum guy, you know. He'd been in the England, and I knew Wiggum's history. If you come out of Wiggum, you you had some shooting ability. You knew how to do it, and I guess my background had enough of that in it that that I really that's part of what made me decide that this guy is perfect guy for me, and I think he he will do well for us. And how God he did well for us. Uh, he just really did a phenomenal job. And Adrian is just, he, he always, and he was very strange with me all the time. And he used to joke with me because I really didn't know how to take Adrian. And I don't think anybody that's been around Adrian much knows how to take a person like that. And he would, I would be sitting in a dressing room and he would come in and he would set his bag down. And he had Linda was always with him his wife and, uh, and his valet and, and she would just uh, go to the corner out of the way and Adrian would come by and he would take his hand and he would rub it down my leg and he would go, Oh, you're looking so good, Ron. And I would be like, Oh, Adrian, <laughs> I didn't really know, you know, <laughs> okay. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate it. You know, but Adrian, it turned out to be a great asset for my company and Adrian loved Pensacola. Uh, and in fact, this was probably when he came, I'm going to, I can't remember the exact year, but I'm thinking it was probably about 1985, 86. And he never left Pensacola until just recently. And he went back home to England after all those years, he, he made it his home. And I don't believe he he went to wrestle for anybody. He would wrestle the small towns like a lot of wrestlers that uh, once Vince got things shut down everywhere else, he would find a place to make him a little bit of money here and there, and he would do his thing. But uh, he never left Pensacola, and he told me many, many times uh, how much he really appreciated me bringing him in and introducing him to that city that he just uh, really loved it. As we begin wrapping things up, we want to remind you that you can become friends with Ron on Facebook. You can like his page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. You can also follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Classic Wrestling Talk and Wrestling Humor, the 605 Super Podcast. Of course, you could find the Studcast, the Super Studcast, the rest of the story, souvenirs, a gallery of photos, and much more directly at TNStud.com. And on the topic of Super Studcast and rest of the story, you can go to TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast for all eight Super Studcasts and rest of the story. And don't forget... On Tuesday, September 11th, Super Studcast number nine, Wrestling Riots, will be released. It will debut on Tuesday, September 11th. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, before we forget, which we kind of do a lot, quite a bit, you know, let's, I want to, the gentleman from England, I believe is going to be the winner of this, uh, the two questions for today. Uh, Really, really liked uh, talking about Adrian. uh, uh, So, 
And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of fans in England, and, uh, you know, it's an opportunity. I'm glad to have somebody from England that uh, that's going to get a photo. I'll be sending that out to the gentleman, uh, Monty, Monty in, uh, in London. And, uh, yeah, next week, I'll tell you, what we're going to do is we're very close to getting on that big old 747 and, uh, and rolling out uh, to, to another continent, to Australia. But uh, we just finished Jack Briscoe's match. It's Christmas 1972. I'm scheduled to leave uh, the first or second day in January of the same year to get my butt out to Australia to, uh, to stay there for two or close to three months. Uh, and uh, so the, I've got one more match. Uh, one more match before I actually catch the plane to go to Australia. And the, I'm wrestling on Christmas night. Uh, Jack Briscoe and I wrestle on Christmas night in 1972. And on Saturday of that same week is going to be my last show. And that show is going to be in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I'm going to ride on Lester's private plane. Uh, in the last few weeks on this program, on our studcast, we've talked about some bad situations in private planes. Uh, we're going to have a little bad situation on this flight to San Juan. And when we get to San Juan, we're going there next episode. When we get to San Juan, finally, and to the stadium, we're going to have ourselves a big-time wrestling riot right there in San Juan. So it's a uh, next week will be a uh, if if fans are into into uh, exciting rides on their on small planes and into anything like uh, a crazy thing like a ride uh, they're going to very much enjoy next week we're off to San Juan Puerto Rico in the next episode. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. I am the Great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the great smoky mountains.